These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Let's move on. Who are we moving on to next? Hopefully someone who will cleanse the palate, right? Mm, no, no. No, no. Who is it, Greg? Uh, Rose. Oh, God damn it. I mean, it's the natural progression because we've just covered the emotional highs and lows, mostly lows of chapter 35. Mm. So that brings us to chapter 36, where... Rose McClellan is is the devil, quote unquote, yes. the voice of the enemy, speaking to us, speaking to Abigail, as James goes off to try and find help. It was an intriguing choice. Like we talked about this a little bit last time, because we get a lot more feedback from her, and inside her own brain, at this point, it can't help but refocus onto her with pinpoint laser accuracy, because after we have lost Annie to her people, we want to look at her and go, you did this. We want to be like Imperator Furiosa and pull the mask off of Morton Joe's face in retribution for what he and those who follow him have done. Mm -hmm. But when I originally wrote this, outline i was once more highlighting how hard-hitting the choice is to make rose mcclellan the voice of our enemy as covered earlier the men of green hollow are just as dangerous but are more elemental brutish simple they are rose's minions in the way that the war boys and his sons are the minions of the mind behind the evil Immortan Joe. She is the smart one, Mm. which makes her broken empathy that more dangerous. That she is not merely racist, but she has sold the whole of her gender down the river in order to maintain her power. And it does not matter that she herself doesn't commit, doesn't enact with her own hands evil acts, because it is her will that permits them all through this terrible logic that contaminates us just having to read or hear it. And the idea that anyone could justify this cruelty, especially a woman, brings out anger in us equal to what Abigail feels in the story. Mm. She wants to, we want to destroy the source of this contamination, lest the poison spread and do more harm. She is a cancer of a human. Mm. Rose doubling down and saying that she sees Abigail as nothing more than a... Well, you all heard the episode. It raises the bile in your throat. It 
puts you and Abigail's following narration in perfect sync as you feel every impulse to want this woman dead, her words dead, her acts dead. You just need her gone. Sort of similarly to how we felt of Mohawk. Mm. But circumstance makes this the course we cannot follow. It's excruciating. Rose, even in captivity, even with her life on the line, even with her dignity well gone at this stage, as the details shared of just her having relieved herself and all of that, she still holds to her beliefs, and she does so with a barbed pride. She shows no capacity for remorse. She's got no capacity for reflection or empathy. Instead, she just substitutes it with venom with which she chooses to lash out. It is absolute evil, a way of cruelty that cannot be reasoned out of existence, and we are forced to abide it, to tolerate it, even if just for now. There is more of a chance at Seth showing complexity and the capacity for consideration and multiple paths ahead which he might take that do not necessarily lead to our characters being in his sights. But it is the human element that, for as willful as we see the best examples of it within the story managing to be, we are shown that same determination set upon a wretched, poisonous cause. What comes to mind is not just how we feel listening to Rose talk, but as we'll get into a second, how Abby feels witnessing it, what choice she has to make as a result of being witness to it. There is components of this kind of confrontation in The Dark Knight, the Mm. Nolan Batman film. But even more than that, I have to imagine how Batman felt faced with the how Batman was put to the test in the killing joke. Uh, Ah, yeah, 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 with the Barbara and with Barbara and with Jim. Mm. How hard it must have been for him to not follow through and want to take vengeance on damage that might not have been healed from and in Mm. some cases wasn't, continuing to reach out a hand to the Joker and say, I don't want either of us to end up killing the other. But we're both running out of alternatives. And we both know it. Maybe it all hinges on tonight. Is our last chance to sort this bloody mess out. If you don't take it, then we're locked on a suicide course. Both of us to the death. It doesn't have to end like that. (sighs) This is different from that because you and I don't believe that Rose McClung could come around mm. any more than the rest of her family could. We barely believe that it's 
it's possible for another member of Green Hollow, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Mm. But the point is here, the devil's temptation is not in tempting someone to join their side because there's no way that Abigail ever would. The temptation that Abby has to overcome is to not kill her. Mm. The biggest component of chapter 36 is what goes on inside Abby herself. Faced with trauma and loss, she has to find a way to come to terms with her mistakes, blaming herself for Annie's death, even though she was not directly responsible for it, and shows she resorts to what she often does, trying to be angry instead. Wanting to, you know, as we alluded to earlier, cleanse the earth of Rose McLellan. To do some pruning. Mm. But it could be argued that Annie's death saved her. She is compelled to choose the greater good instead of anger and despair. Since Annie herself is no longer around to provide the counterpoint. Mm. Abby has to keep herself in check. Or risk not just losing herself, but also the entire team to the chaotic emotions that she's been struggling with over the course of this entire story. Annie becomes an example, a standard that Abigail holds herself to. Saying that feels wrong in some ways, as if Annie were a martyr, that her death is being utilised for beneficial ends by other people outside of her control. But it is much more simple and personal than any grand purpose that might be intentionally spun out of the captain's death. Abigail wants to keep Annie's memory alive. She needs to act in the way that she feels Annie would if she were here, because that helps us to feel as if the person we mourn is here, is affecting things even now. Later, we see Abigail pick up Annie's revolver, carrying her signature weapon forward, but it isn't really just Annie's gun that she takes up. It's her thinking, her approach as a negotiator. It's a totem. Yeah. If Abigail doesn't think with the perspective and leadership qualities that Annie possessed and tried to instill in her, it's not just herself or the rest of the team that she now takes responsibility for that she risks losing. It's the last part of Annie that she can still hold on to. That part of Annie does, in fact, show itself in more ways than in Abigail's later arguments to Buford McClellan. Once upon a time, years ago at this point, I considered the idea that the voices of Aunt Cleo and Amanda might live on inside Rebecca's head, guiding her, being those parts of her that made her embody the triple goddess. Mm. It was only on re-listening to Steamheart that I remembered that Alex already did something similar to this in Chapter 36. I wanted to kill every single person running that township. I'd made a promise to a room full of women, and right now, it seemed like the only way they were getting out 
was over the corpses of their captors. But they were holding my friends there too. Harry and Miguel and Jeremy and Raven and poor Major Butler who didn't even know yet that his wife was gone. I needed to hold on to the smallest chance we could rescue them. Keep that ray of hope alive. For a moment, Annie was standing beside me and I jumped. I'd not seen her, but the picture in my mind was so clear. She'd said simply one word, or felt one feeling, and it was yes. It's not quite like, say, the ghosts or the voices in Let Them Go. Mm-hmm. But even if there is no actual ghost of Annie because the ghosts in New Century have always been kind of ephemeral, and we never know for sure if they actually exist or if they are parts of the psyche of the living characters. But when you said a moment ago that Abigail is trying to hold on to what remains of Annie, then this seeming ghost of her in the story could be a representation of that. Mm. So the story only lightly brushes the edge of whether this dramatic final act has left Annie as a ghost that haunts Abigail. Maybe some future story will do more with that, but for the moment it's just the barest hint. The idea that when Abigail speaks to Buford, that she is speaking with Annie's voice as a way of keeping Annie alive, feels right. Mm. We see in this moment that Abigail is the very least honoring this person that meant so much to her by trying to be her going forward. And he feels as if she is carried by Abigail in the same way that Tony is by Peter in Far From Home. The dynamic is different in a few respects of course for starters annie i believe was confirmed to be younger than abigail lest we forget but she was nevertheless abigail's mentor or at least she took it upon herself to mentor abigail and while the world stage is very different in the world of the mcu and in centrum these two are nevertheless high profile well heroes according to the publicity campaign at the beginning of the book the loss of annie is a loss to many and it's possible that abigail feels the need for that new indescribable absence to be intercepted and filled in some way before it can bring her and others into despair this was originally the end of the previous recording session but as we've still got over an hour of discussion left Let's move right on. Finally, moving on from the topic of Annie and Abigail specifically, mm-hmm. there's this rolling catastrophe that has kind of been going on since the beginning of part four, or one could argue even further if you include the encounter with Seth and the Wendigo. Everything just compounds on top of each other. Abigail returns to Green Hollow with the intent of trying to keep a situation stable while James goes off to get reinforcements. But, like, 
Who knows what even could keep it stable at this point? She just knows that she needs to find a way to keep everybody alive in the meantime. Even though Abigail theoretically succeeds on that by managing to pull together her own strength and borrow a little bit of Annie's spirit talking to Buford, we have Steamheart destroyed, leaving Harry numb and incapacitated. Miguel is seemingly killed on top of that, although, as as mentioned previously, we learn very quickly that it's just an illusion that was, in theory, partly set up by, you know, Raven and Harry helping him get out, but making it seem like he died. So it's the trick that the audience falls for. But Like Frank, any good heist, it only works if you don't tell the audience the plan ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. And Frank, likewise, goes into non-responsive shock when Abigail Ooh. reveals Annie's final fate. So it is a goddamn relief that at the very beginning of chapter 37, Alex reveals to us that Miguel is alive, and even though he is going through his own emotional turmoil, he finds himself able to get to a place where he appreciates that his previous story has prepared him for dealing with this kind of catastrophe. Like, in some ways, it's almost a mirror of him being, quote-unquote, trapped in Beatrix's cabin. But Mm -hmm. having some agency, because just as Beatrix didn't realize that he was a threat, nobody at Green Hollow realizes that he's a going concern either. But it sort of takes us a while to warm up to that place, and in the meantime... We are sitting inside his head with his own despair after what happened with Rao, after seeing the ongoing atrocities of Green Hollow. As we wait for, like, the dominoes to be set up, so to speak, it continues to keep us in that dark place in our minds that has been steadily growing, where hope seems fleeting and impossible. There's a degree of poetic irony in the fact that I just finished Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice last night. Ooh. Yeah, and that is a deep well of (sighs) a lot of dark emotions, a lot of despair, that there is very little light to keep us going Mm -hmm. through to the end. Mm -hmm. Not to mention that it's a it's a difficult game. It's not it's not impossible for someone of my very average skill in playing games, but at least at least I was able to do better with the combat of this rather than the platforming of Celeste, say. Mm-hmm. So I was eventually able to figure out patterns and just bludgeon my way through every combat encounter. The combat encounters were always the most difficult all of the gameplay that was other kinds of stuff even the freaky stuff was intriguing to me and i kind of liked the way that hellblade focused more on being a story than on being a game like there was gameplay but it's a little bit different than say god of war where there's collectibles and there's new weapons to unlock. And all of this is just very stripped down. 
a very specific, dedicated ex experience, and all the gameplay elements are cleaved towards telling the story rather than mm. playing a game. The playing a game isn't bad, but it, it just makes it very effective for keeping its audience laser-focused on what's going on. But that also means that because it's very good at doing it, it's very good at doing it. Just like Steamheart is very good at bringing its audience with its characters into the darkness. Mm. Well, we are trapped with these characters, even after Abigail has done the best that she could, and we know that she has, it ends up with their imprisonment and predicament feeling all the more inescapable. We are seeing the things that define our protagonists be ripped away from them. Harry's baby Steamheart is obliterated cruelly. They didn't understand what Steamheart was, nor did they care that some of their own were injured or killed in the process. Yeah, that, that added detail. Mm. Just sort of says a little bit everything in terms of the quality of the people that we're dealing with. Mm. It's 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 almost very nihilistic or Joker esque almost that like oh some of us died who cares party burn it all down. <sighs> I mean it, it's not even about uh, destruction for destruction's sake. It's th there's a difference between taking this abandoned thing and blowing it up because whoa explosions and this because they, they add that all they cared about was that something our friends cared about yeah. was taken from mm, them mm, mm. it is destruction for cruelty's sake not for destruction's sake the cruelty is the point mm -hmm. abigail has lost the person who filled that role of the position of authority that she would buck up against in order to establish her free will. And Abigail is taking responsibility in Annie's absence. So she has to change how she defines herself now that a key part of that is no longer here. Mm. And Butler... Poor Butler... He has always felt like the perfect support to Annie. We know that he is perfectly capable and engaging as a character on his own, as we saw in Arlington, which demonstrated not only his aptitude as an individual, but Annie's. He, more than anyone else, believed in Annie. And despite the names being set long ago outside of Alex's hands, the story just makes their names work as a pair. We know Annie Oakley primarily as Annie in the text, and we and the characters generally refer to Frank Butler as Butler. They were A and B, mm. a pair that complemented one another. And while it's perhaps a little bit of a jump to compare him to Alfred, Butler just calls to mind characters who occupy that position, who exude a cool, earnest, unflappable support. He trusted in Annie, supported her, worked with her, and loved her. And now he is a butler with no one to dedicate himself towards. Pulling back the curtain a bit, Toby's speech about Annie and Butler was what I came back to after a lot of time working on other projects. 
The last time I opened the file to edit this episode was May 2nd, 2023, meaning that it had been almost five months since any work had been done with the Steamheart retrospective. In that time, we recorded several Panther Soul interviews and three whole episodes of a spin-off show talking about other things. Eleven episodes in total. I think we put out some quality content, but at the same time, it was different content that had highs and lows. I remembered that Toby and I would be coming back to the darkest part of Steamheart's story, to a world without Annie, to Green Hollow and all its rot, but it wasn't real to me until I heard Toby's words. I needed the respite, I think. But we've got a story to finish, which we are recording the next episode of today as I write these lines to insert into this episode. So let's get through it together, shall we? Because there will be some good moments before the final denouement, and we can move on to the zany antics of the Princess Thieves. That story never has any dark parts. Ever. Right? I liked your turn of phrase there. And of course, the relationship between Bruce and Alfred. Oh, that's another A and B, isn't that? It is. Um, <laughs> the relationship between So Bruce are they ABBA together? <laughs> Mamma Mia. Here I go again. Obviously, the relationship between young man and mentor, the way Alfred and Bruce began and then grow up into being adults together, is different from the support that comes from an intimate relationship. Mm. And this is something that we've been waiting to talk about for a very long time, because the seeds for all of this were laid long ago. Mm not just the beginning of Steamheart, where we find out about Butler before Annie. B.A. before Annie. Uh, um, even the jokes hurt this episode, Greg. Yeah. When I went back to read all of these other books in preparation for doing this podcast with you, one of the things that stood out the most to me was from Arlington, where Frank is talking about how a part of him goes to sleep when Annie's not around. (laughs) And at least in the case of Arlington, or at least in the case of any other circumstance where the two of them have to part and can't face situations together, there is the expectation, there is the seemingly unshakable belief almost that they will come back together. Mm. And now that illusion, because nothing is ever certain, has been broken. And Frank now once more kind of has to define himself permanently without Andy. Mm. This does feel different than how it was back in chapter two, where Frank is sitting alone in that house, having buried his wife and kids. A wife that he did not love the same way that he loved Annie, but that he liked providing for. He liked being someone that was in her life. And after that level of loss, we already see him pondering the idea of eating a bullet. Mm -hmm. Frank felt more alive. Frank found himself, partly through dedicating himself to the bigger cause of the reunified states of America, but 
duty can only take you so far. Belief in a cause can give you hope, but it's not quite the same as the hope that comes from someone that loves you. Mm. And to a certain extent, we could say that even though the RSA continues to exist, even though Frank still has his duty to the army, to the grant administration, even that duty has already been partly harmed due to Thomas and Sarah being dead, especially after he made a promise to protect them back in Arlington. Once more, love for a person is more tangible, and Thomas was the embodiment of his cause. Not just a healing of what was broken, but building something better together. He Mm. went on a different assignment because Thomas asked him to, and in his absence, they were killed. So he's already trying to deal with that, and being Annie's second was what helped him pull through that experience. Mm. Now he's lost again. The previous grieving process interrupted by fresh grief. I feel like we can talk about it, at least to start here, because we're already going to discuss the chapter and where we see where Frank comes out on the end of that. Mm. But, like, if he's lost Annie, he's still a person. I don't want to dehumanize him or anything like that. But I find myself wondering if he thinks he's a person. Remember, again, back in Chapter 2, where he said that the two things that he can do is shoot guns and blow glass. Mm. No glass around here, no partner to define himself by. All he's got left is the killer. He's very good at killing. And that's something he can do. Mm. It's something active. It's difficult to ascertain whether he feels like if he just fights hard enough, it will somehow retroactively be like he couldn't fight for her then so he fights as hard as he ever could as methodically as Mm -hmm. mechanically precise as any human can really move in a similar way to how john wick moves through his films where Mm. there is a fury a purpose that just propels Mm. them forward and in both cases at least the first john wick film and with butler here what propels them is loss in john wick's case he lost his wife and Mm. then his wife gave him something that he could hold on to and focus on to help him process yeah and then that process is interrupted so all the response he has left is going back to what he knows best Mm. better than anything else the thing that other people trained him to be the weapon the difference here is that frank isn't motivated by simple rage as toby will get into he still has the task set him by thomas so since he no longer has annie to live for one might think he is willing to give his life to try to carry out that final command. Protect the group. Protect Harry. Butler doesn't separate himself from the group. He specifically tells them how to best make use of what he is about to do. Mm -hmm. But you definitely feel that he is going on this path regardless of anyone else, that they have almost melted away from his picture. Mm. 
as evidenced by the fact that the most terrible thing he does, he does immediately and without any degree of consultation with the others. It's a path that he sets himself on swiftly and decisively from Jump Street. He has done this and now he will keep the ball rolling and smash as much as he can in a way that isn't even that Hulk version of rage. It is surgical and selected rage. The thing that we wonder almost is that because we can't necessarily see inside Frank's head, I I don't remember if we get to see inside Frank's head again before the end, so Mm. to speak. But it isn't like when Abigail had to respond on instinct in order to protect her life a couple chapters ago. Mm. It isn't like where Annie had to make a decision to do what she did and steal herself against everything else. Part of us wonders if Frank is just there already. Like, he Mm. didn't have to work himself into a place. This is just where he is in some Mm. kind of limbo as a result of losing Annie. And he's just finding whatever sense of self he has left to put it to use. Mm. He is attacking the enemy, and he is doing it well. Mm. But as you say, it's not clear if he's doing it with anybody else's consideration in mind. It's not even clear that he expects to or even wants to survive this experience. This is simply something that is happening. Mm -hmm. And with the last shred of what he knew, what he felt responsible to before he had his world taken away from him, he says, use this as best you can. Mm -hmm. I'm going. Like the guns he holds, he points himself in a direction and fires. But before we get to that point Mm -hmm. where Frank is equipped, Mm -hmm. where he is given the means to change, to affect this situation. Mm -hmm. And he does so with every extent of his power, every reserve that he has ever had, and every ounce of restraint that he has had to have as someone who, alongside Annie, would have practiced diplomacy in the past. Mm -hmm. He throws all of that away. He is employing every shred of aggressive ability in himself Mm. to this task but before then he doesn't have agency there is no one who can affect the situation on our hero's side the only person who can is miguel Mm. and that is the hard thing that miguel has to confront and deal with in this chapter and we've seen him confront that once before Mm. and we talked about how he handled himself on the boat with the uh, the lions mm-hmm. in Tiger's Eye. But in Tiger's Eye, he was also unable to act decisively right away. Mm. It took him time. He had to... It was a combination of assessing things with a certain degree of full consideration, but also hesitation. Mm. He was scared to be the person who took full charge of this because up to that point, he wasn't the person in full responsibility for someone else. He 
had no choice but to follow what his father told him to do. And on some level, he probably hoped that it would be in his best interest, even though he likely didn't believe that. And one of the moments where he felt more proud was in that time where he said no to his father, even though he was punished for it. And after that, he was in Prowl's care. But on the ship of the lions, they were in his care. And that is a world that is frightening to many, adult or child alike, to really come to terms with that, especially in highly stressful and, yes, very lethal circumstances like this. But now it's kind of on the other foot. Yeah. Because instead of being afraid to take action for fear of screwing up or fear of getting caught for fear of just failing, here we get the overall feeling like we know Miguel has the resources to deal with this. We've Mm -hmm. kind of seen how different he is in Steamheart from how he was in Tiger's Eye. Mm -hmm. Now he fears having to go back to that Mm. place where Mm. he has to put on the mask and be more like Crow because Mm. he doesn't like who he is when he has to be that version of himself. Because I wouldn't even say that it is, he's not becoming Crow per se, but he is taking what he has learned from that experience and has to steel himself against his natural empathy. Mm. That which comes naturally to a soldier like Frank, or to a hunter like Rao, does not come so easy to Miguel. And that's kind of part of the reason why we like him. Even Rao has empathy, but first of all, we're dealing with different instincts that go along with being a feline, that humans don't necessarily have those same instincts. And on top of that, she trained to be a hunter, which means that just like Frank is very good at shooting, she's very good at being an ambush predator, and she passed that on to Miguel. Mm. And Miguel, he's not happy with the possibility of having to wear that hat, but he realizes under the circumstances that they probably don't have a choice, that he is their only hope. He can't trust someone else to take this choice away from him because he can act he pushes himself to act. Yeah, and with all of this going on, it is Miguel who escapes and is able to gather himself, even while everyone else is falling to pieces. Well, I say that, but we have seen how several members of the group are nevertheless finding means of considering their circumstances and Mm -hmm. thinking of things. It's just that he has the most agency, but go on, as you're about to say. Exactly. And he's able to redouble his resolve and muster all of his learned knowledge and gathered resources. As the youngest member of the group, it would be understandable to suggest that what he witnesses the fathers of Green Hollow perpetrating in their homes would rob him of any and all innocence. And it is haunting to consider even as a grown adult listening to this let alone considering a boy having to witness it but miguel is resilient that doesn't mean he's fine after experiencing all this how could he be only that we know full well how adaptable he is and 
his ability to plan and act when caught deep into unknown and frightening territory. Yeah, that's actually a good point that I hadn't considered. One of the things that we mentioned back when discussing Tiger's Eye was that Miguel was not necessarily full witness to everything that the slaves had to deal with on board the whale. Mm. Now, as Miguel tries to figure out what to do, he is not kept apart from the atrocities of Green Hollow. He witnesses it, and although that's a horrible thing to have to live through, it may well be part of what goads him into action. Much like Abigail was goaded into action by what she witnessed in the McClellan's house. Um, Something occurs to me. Mm. We are shown all of this from Miguel's point of view. Mm. And it's important that we see all of the thought, hesitation, Mm. and ultimately perseverance in spite of the toll it takes to see these necessary acts through. And the fact that even as he does these things, after knowing what some of these men have done, it is not something that he relishes. We see all of that and it takes its time it has that drawn-out dread to the anticipation of it and the execution of it. And then we see Butler kill a child in a moment. No internal analysis. Mm. The first thing he does is he steps out, seizes tool, and does what he does immediately. Mm-hmm. That is a point of contrast that I hadn't actually considered yeah. up till now, that... This young kid, Miguel, we see everything that he has gone through and him maintaining that sense of just because he hates what these people are doing, that doesn't mean that he is actively looking for a reason to kill. Mm. And this complete lack of internal explanation or unveiling of consideration or intent or goals from Frank's perspective. We just see him from his actions. But we also kind of get, like, we don't necessarily... We guess it. We don't need to be told what's going on in Frank's head. we don't, because the actions say enough. Mm -hmm. As always, we know Alex draws a lot on other cinematic experiences that have meant a lot to him. And there are a lot of notable cinematic thoughts that could have been occurring to Alex in this moment. You must never hesitate. Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Thanks for the advice. If I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're going to turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. What if you do got me boxed in and I got to put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate. Not for a second. These are imperfect comparisons. 
though the one that comes closest is the idea of old veteran John Mason teaching Stanley Goodspeed what is necessary to stop the enemy. But a piece of media that comes most to mind is a counterpoint to this scene, and is not from a place that Alex would have seen at all. A season 3 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where the Enterprise's doctor is taken captive by local terrorists fighting against the existing power structure. The episode does not make judgments against the government in power, claiming only that the terrorists are separatists desiring independence, and the government denied such desires, leading to both protests and violent acts. In the case of Green Hollow, their desire to remain separate and see to their own as they see fit is not at all sympathetic. But it is the way that that episode ends that resonates, where a separatist boy picks up a gun to kill a leader of government security forces, and in the show, Dr. Crusher is able to appeal to the boy's empathy, saying, no more killing. And of course, because it is Star Trek, her appeal to empathy works. We want Miguel's appeal to Adam's empathy to have worked. But Miguel also just killed the man in front of him, and we can see why Butler acted as he did. He weighed the situation, and acted ruthlessly to protect his people. And something just to tie off a thought that I didn't actually necessarily conclude earlier, when I compared the parts that and the place that John Wick and Frank Butler are when they commence this descent. The I said that John Wick loses his partner, his wife, and then he loses the means of support in the face of that grief. Mm. Annie was both. Mm. Annie was Butler's wife, but she was also the thing that helped him get through the grief that not only he, but this whole world were going through and dealing with. And they took that from me. When Ellen died, I lost everything. Until that dog arrived on my doorstep. A final gift for my wife. In that moment, I received some semblance of hope. An opportunity to grieve on the law. And your son took that from me. Stole that from me. Killed that from me! People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. That is the un deniable raw indignation that you feel here mm. and it's hard for me to even talk about just because it is terrible to witness it's terrible mm. to consider it is action that does not elate in many ways actually deflates it makes you go oh god no it is that anti-action moment that mm. Alex has talked about in stories like the Caesar trilogy of the Planet of the Apes films, mm. that when big, uproarious action happens, it is actually not something that you feel elated by. You dread it, you fear it, and you 
regret seeing characters get caught up in it who that path was not always a foregone conclusion. I mean, the men of Green Hollow were always going to do harm to the Steamheart group one way or another if they could, mm. because that is what they are. That is how they define mm. themselves. Even in a place of safety, they are doing harm and violence to their own. That is literally what we were saying a moment ago that Miguel was witnessing. Yeah. Um, the desire not for action is, well, we want to see our group safe. We don't want to see them lose themselves in the process. Greg, you know what moments I love on this show? Mm. When I will have a thought go through my head, and it will even take the form of a complete coherent sentence. And then I hear you say that sentence out loud. There is a reason why we work as well together as we do. Yes. The conversation is a fine craft, hobby, art. What I love about it is when, like a dance, it synchronizes. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> but to bring a little hope back to the conversation, I want to touch mm. on what you were alluding to a moment ago, which is that aside from what Frank is going through internally and what Miguel is going through overtly through all of his narration and all of his... I, I like that. That is that is the contrast between yeah. them that I was sort of scrambling at getting to. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, his suiting up montage, so to speak, squaring his nerve. It's, on some level, it's almost like what, what he's going through is more elaborate than what we see on screen. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to get out a caseless bullet for the jar, <laughs> one could argue that Miguel escaping Steamheart, witnessing what's going on in Green Hollow, collecting venom and figuring out his route and everything like that, it feels like the entire sequence of Ellen Ripley getting on board the new dropship, piecing together all of her weapons getting bullets and flares, and then getting onto the uh, elevator, going down into the heart of the enemy. And then she inhales, and she exhales, and we know she's ready. Mm. In that shot, we all remember, that is a commendably drawn comparison and mm. absolutely valid. I would say that I would actually draw from the other side of the particular AVP equation. And instead of Alien, mm. I would actually invoke the moment from both the original Predator mm. of just Schwarzenegger ah, at the yes. end, just yes. like preparing and rather than gearing up with all of the modern technology and weapons of war, he is actually using the environment to his benefit in order to fight this thing on his terms. Mm, mm. But also, fortunately, since the writing of Steamheart, and you may think, oh, this is a very clever uh, comparison, Toby. I can't take credit. I would cite my sources being Alex himself, because uh, I believe he mentioned this during one of the initial White Scarves episodes on Steamheart. But the thing that uh, is vindicating to know because things rhyme is that now we can have another point of comparison to draw which is the marvelous prey 
You think that I'm not a hunter like you? And I'm not a threat. That is what makes me dangerous. You can't see. But I'm killing you. And it won't either. It's just funny how these things work out sometimes. When you have good storytellers that respect the source material, then you can get some great, proper, homage-worthy stuff mm. while still keeping the story its own rather than just being some lesser reflection of the original. Mm. So yes, Prey definitely stands up on its own mm. while hearkening to what it builds on from the experience of the Predator mm. movie-slash-movies, mm. but also makes it a story that is worth telling above and beyond the original. It does something new with the idea. Mm. It's the difference between iteration and replication. Mm, mm, mm. Good, good, good turn of phrase there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. We got off track there, but... I mean, Prey's um, so fucking good, you guys. You gotta watch Prey if you haven't already. It's, 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 it's a very good movie. Because of everything else going on that is keeping us in the darkness. Darkness. I... No parrots. And of course, darkness gets referred to a lot in um, Hellblade, Sinuous Sacrifice. Not the darkness from uh, Kingdom Hearts, though. That's a different kind of darkness. Um, I mean, the, the darkness in uh, Kingdom Hearts is not a mer- metaphorical darkness. It actually has a tangible thing and its own mechanics and physics to how it works. And also not the darkness from the comics. And this would be the darkness. I remember the night of my 21st birthday. Must not have been a very good party then. That was the first time I died. Yep, Jägermeister will do that to you. There's a lot of things called the darkness. And there's also also not the band The Darkness. That was a nice little sequence of references. That was that's what we call a clapback. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) My point is is that on revisiting these chapters, I had forgotten that Harry roused herself enough to put her mind to the mystery of the wind doors. Hmm. In 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 retrospect, it makes Hmm. sense given what I know is going to happen in the climactic chapters. Yes. But I, but I had forgotten that she hadn't gone completely to the outside world internal the way Frank seemed to. I apologize if what we're scratching at is sort of circling around the idea of like maybe giving the, way, the game away of what we'll be covering in the next batch of chapters. Mm-hmm. But when I saw that, I was having the same thoughts as you and thought, oh, oh, this is actually quite significant that mm. she is thinking mm. this right here and now. Showing your uh, work. 
It, it is showing your work, motherfuckers. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that back. <laughs> I genuinely like. I know you can never force these things, but mm. fuck it, I'm gonna force this. I think "show your work, motherfuckers" is probably going to be a phrase I bring in, uh, mm. much like I would open many boxes. Mm. It's fine. It's fine. We yep. should. We should absolutely we, have our own. We've, we've we've got many running gags now at this point. So mm. or, or or many or many thematic lines, and some of them are stuff that we've come yeah. up with. Some of them are stuff that Alex has come up with. Look, and some of it I, is just every now and then you got to drop. In spite of everything, it's still you. Fandoms will build up and establish their own mimetic language, mm. and we, as the crown champions of the new century fandom, no, we're not. That is a high degree of sarcasm. Please don't misconstrue us. We want to have competition. We want to look at some new up and coming new century podcast and say like, oh, these guys are even more obsessed than us. My point mm. is that we are absolutely at the forefront of making sure that we have turns of phrase from new century that just apply to life. Like, if you were to go to the sort of Twitter and put in like the hashtag new century, this would be all the memes that come up as a result of it. One could point out that's how old this recording is. It happened before Elon Musk initiated Twitter further by renaming it X. But let's face it, I'm never going to call it that, even after it is stone cold dead. See, well, see, here's the thing: there are memes that are just kind of fun mm. and, you know, resonant because they're clever and witty and everything like that. And then there are things that are mimetic specifically because we learn something from the experience of reading, listening, imbibing a piece of media after which we are changed. Mm. It could be a small thing, but when it provides a little piece of wisdom that sticks with you and changes the way you see things going forwards, then very often you want to share that experience with others. Mm -hmm. To go back to one of my first most hard-hitting memes, there is a reason why 20 years ago now I decided to set up my Gmail account and as a footer at the end of every email have... There are no happy endings, because nothing ends. That one line hit me so hard when I was just a kid that it's just like, I gotta share that with everybody going forward. And maybe people don't even notice it, but at least I made the effort, you know? See, so. kids, not all of the literature on the early history days of the internet was just, I can has cheeseburger. There were people like Greg who were actually trying to, you know, do what we're doing now and turn an eloquent phrase. Okay, Toby, that's inflating my own ego a little too much. After all, I was once young and wanted to be thought of as cool and smart, even before I realized just how much more I had to learn. That doesn't mean that we can't still be fucking stupid. That's fun too. It's just, why not both? There's no reason not to have fun, but there's a certain satisfaction that comes from getting to share something that was significant to you and hope that it affects someone else in the same way, like you're spreading 
just even a small level of goodness. Mm. And that's part of the reason why I keep on bringing up the West Wing wherever I go. Because, because there is a lot of fun stuff in there. Absolutely a lot of fun stuff. And there's stuff in there that hasn't aged well or was never really great. And I didn't interrogate until later in life. But there is a lot of truism there as well. And the stuff that's in there keeps finding a way to be relevant in later experiences. So that's just part of the reason why it constantly comes to mind whenever discussing other mm. stories or when discussing real life experiences. You know, it's all fodder. Something can be memorable because it's funny. Something can be memorable because it's wise. Something can be memorable because it's stupid. But as Alex would say, sometimes the worst media is the stuff that's not memorable at all. Mm. It leaves no impression. You don't mm. even remember that you watched it, read it two days later. or whatever. It's the empty calories of mm. literature and media. My favorite kind is the sort where it gets to be multiple things at once because there's a moment from one of the phase four Marvel projects that is genuinely very profound and immensely philosophical. And yet now, whenever people bring it up, I can't help but titter. And it is, Greg, are you familiar with the ship of Theseus? And that's recent too. So, yeah. I mean, the ship of Theseus isn't recent, but that line is yeah. like a couple of years old at this point. Yeah. Much like the subject matter of the moment itself, how do we determine whether something is itself or it's been reconstituted and readapted over time? This original moment gets repurposed and applied, and it will become something else as time goes on. We get to have moments that stay with us because the meaning we draw from them will, in a lot of ways, just gain more value because we draw more from it. Whether the story we first experienced it in continues in some form and gains extra depth and meaning to it there, where if you have a particular character say something like, I'm with you till the end of the line, or I could do this all day, is so much more of a statement than it was when the only Steve Rogers film was Captain America, the first Avenger. These things increase in value. They age like wine. And, and, and if, they're, if they're good, if they're used properly, then you can even poke fun at it a little bit. I can do this all day. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh, my God. This, do you ever have a moment where your brain is just firing synapses of connections and then the connections mm. form further connections? Constantly. Yeah. That's, that's, my, brain. that's my brain. See, yeah. see this podcast feed. For me, I was just thinking, oh, a moment that reminds me of that is in the second Toy Story film when Buzz meets that other Buzz with the right. boat. That, and yes. then it's like, tell me I wasn't this deluded. And you, it's like, you mean that laser that's a light bulb? And then I remembered, wait a minute, who voiced Buzz in the most recent iteration? Why, none other than Chris Evans. Oh my God, what does this mean? The snake has just eaten its own tail, that's all. Yep. To infinity um, and beyond. We still have a little more Steamheart to discuss, so I won't hold it up. But on the subject of old media taking on new meeting later in life, I can't help but think of a line from my father's favorite T.S. Eliot poem. 
which he shared with me as a child, and basically made him the man that inspired me to share wisdom with others. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Before we move on to the events of Chapter 38, you mm-hmm. had a great line here about oh, yeah. what Harry is doing while in captivity that I wanted you oh. to share. Yeah. So Harry's contemplation of the Windows is particularly appreciated because it demonstrates the fundamental folly of the symbolic motivation behind Green Hollow destroying Steamheart that we touched on earlier. They destroy the invention, but the inventor continues to think because you cannot destroy thinking. You cannot destroy an idea. That is what the hope you're referring to is about, that despite all that this settlement is and for all its efforts to rob too many of its residents of their agency we see our characters employing what agency they can you can't stop someone from thinking you can certainly try you can beat them down you can try to keep people under control by unleashing consequence after consequence upon them so Mm. that all they so that they are just an animal trying to avoid being hurt or trying to Mm. get some kind of approval. And it's tragic enough if one person or many people are destroyed by bastards like the McClellans. But the very existence of people like the Arlingtons proves that someone will step up and refuse to stop thinking and stop learning and continue to seek their agency regardless. It's why there's a lot of really good writing consideration in one moment towards the end of Disney's Tangled, where when Rapunzel is tied up, we have Mother Gothel dragging Rapunzel away and say, stop struggling. And Rapunzel, in a moment where she should have no power, no cards to do, like no hand to play, says, Rapunzel, really? Enough already! Stop fighting me! No! I won't stop for every minute of the rest of my life. I will fight. I will never stop trying to get away from you. But if you let me save him, I will go with you. That is the hand that she gets to play because agency matters. And that's why I love that moment because it shows that this situation that should render the the female lead in a somewhat like regrettable situation that you don't, that you want to avoid of, oh, she's the damsel in distress. No, no, she is in a rough spot and employs all of her agency to solve the problem mm. and it helps the situation and that's what we're seeing here that they are in a rough spot but they're trying mm. they're doing everything they can because don't you hate it in any media when you see people trapped or it's not that the story is saying oh they are their heart has descended and deflated to a point where they don't have the spirit to keep going on you can see the story is saying they're looking for a way out, but they're not doing anything. Even if it ultimately results in 
failure or it's something that doesn't pan out, seeing that effort to do something counts and it says so much to the strength of your characters that even in circumstances that seem hopeless, they are still fighting tooth and nail for the right to just do something. I'd like to have uh, some wise quote, but I, I was just sort of just like sitting here and just nodding along and going, yeah. There is something about the experience of what an audience is asked to witness as being part of a story. When the characters feel helpless, we feel helpless because we cannot enact change on the story. We are not a part of the story. We hmm. can only witness the story. Hmm. So it's up to someone in the story to fix the problem or to hopefully bring this story to a satisfying end. Hmm. And that's a subject that we're going to discuss in a little bit when I start talking with you about 10 horror movies. Ooh, yeah, that's because that definitely affects how I feel after having watched a horror movie in particular. Hmm. Stories but, that are more often than not about exploring the areas of and fears of life that we cannot control. Mm. So they or are very that, much stories about taking away agency. Taking away agency and the story doesn't always have a happy ending. Mm. You might have to lose a lot before you can even get a cathartic ending. And that's what a story like Let Them Go teaches us. Back to Steamheart. Mm. Chapter 38. It's titled Salvation, which, right. after keeping our head in multiple chapters of darkness, the title of the chapter itself would seem to be a glimmer of that hope that we have been searching for, that we have been trying to nurture. Mm. But the salvation promised in the title, like the drama itself, hangs on a knife's edge. Mm. Even the things that happen in our team's favor feel pyrrhic in places. Like, was the cost too high? One of those first things. We're going to trod a little bit over ground we've already covered here, but as a an expression of trying to exert her agency, Abby does her best to reach out to the boy, Adam. But even though it feels like she might have been making some progress there, in the end, she fails to connect. When I wrote this, I said, like Annie would have done. But it's not necessarily true that if Annie had been doing it, she would have succeeded. It's just that she tried being the kind of communicator and convincing presence that Annie tends to be. And under this circumstance, it just doesn't work. She makes enough of an impression that when it comes down to it, Adam does hesitate. So Abigail accomplished a victory to some extent, just not nearly as definitive as what we have seen Annie manage in the past. In point of fact, in, in the more recent past, when she got them out of Green Hollow, or at least a few of them out, so that they could play some sort of advantage. Here, Abby has managed to negotiate to an extent by getting into Green Hollow and navigating things in a better sense, but 
nevertheless they find themselves in the worst space and with this sympathetic listener she has not swayed them mm. and you know that she is thinking of Carl and Virgil mm. and how there were these people who once upon a time were set towards killing them that had enough inside them to be swayed mm. and she can tell that there is something inside Adam that can be reached. But he's he's young and fearful and she's a stranger. Like mm. she is something new. Adam is curious mm. about what these strangers bring, but he's a little bit too tied to the structure that he grew up with. God's watching me. The boy said with extreme difficulty. I can't be bad. Ever. Well, son. God I know wouldn't call what you're being asked to do bad, I said, feeling the space between us widening and hanging on to the edge with my fingernails. He'd call it mercy. Adam glanced all the way down to the desk and the ring of keys hanging on a hook. Then after a long moment of consideration, backed away from the bars again. Sorry, lady. The, that line haunts me. Just mm. the implications behind that and yeah. the culture and lifetime of like the equivalent of Catholic guilt. And we already know within New Century itself, there have been multiple times where evil adults have successfully bent children to their will. We know it in Miguel, mm. and there's going to be another story where we're going to be talking about that a lot in the near future. To quote a show that I'm going to be talking about on School of Movies very soon, do you even have the slightest idea how little that narrows it down? <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> More specifically, this was an allusion to the then-upcoming discussion on Panthersol and the effect of Mog who calls herself Mother. But Toby isn't wrong. There are at least two books that we haven't covered yet in which we see the scars of parents or parental figures on our protagonists. It kills us a little that the success that Abby had was his hesitation, and that success was taken advantage of by Frank in the way that he did. I mean, it's... there was a more going on in that moment as well. It was also Miguel taking off his mask to try to mm. appeal to the boy's humanity by showing his own. But the boy but... was primed yeah. by his conversation with Abigail. It, it instilled doubt. Yes. We've already talked a little bit about how Miguel has to be the mongoose to mm. kill without mercy and in sometimes gruesome ways to save the team. Mm. Like, we don't see any of this, but the way those deaths are described, they're not PG-13 uh, X2. We're talking full-on Logan here. At one point, I even... Like, it's not a part of his mythology per se, but what came to mind... We've had multiple occasions where Crow has made reference to the gods of her world, 
and it's like Miguel has become an avatar of the Dark Panther, the hunter. Mm. He is now at a point where killing, it's not that it doesn't affect him, but he has found it within himself where he can do so without it bringing him to a halt. He can do it as part of his main goal. He can do it as a step on the way to saving his friends. He's now able to compartmentalize. Yeah. At the same time, we obviously don't want Miguel to get too comfortable with killing. With Alex at the helm, I don't see that happening. And yet, at the same time, I can imagine a version of Miguel existing that does thanks to the emotional breadth and visual storytelling of a recent animated feature that Alex has said would be the art style he'd go for if Rama was brought to life. We've already talked about Frank pretty thoroughly, which was my my third point on the list, but I realized Mm. that I left something out, in part because he was brought in at the tail end of the previous chapter. James got to the RSA, and who's coming with the reinforcements? Why, it's Mr. White. Yay! We only got a little bit of a sense of Mr. White from the end of Arlington, but he makes his person... He's not a man of half measures. Look, we have this guy on our side. Yay? (laughs) Is the situation better or worse? That's the feeling we have about Mr. White right now. If it had been someone else, if it had been General Curtis, that would have been something. But Mm. he makes his personality and archetype and feelings very clear with how he addresses James. Nice. Dr. Penrose, we meet at last. I wish I could say it's my pleasure, but it would make me a filthy liar. I shifted uncomfortably at this. His piercing eyes flashed beneath the mask. As I understand it, your appointed mission has been fucked into oblivion, and you would like some help in retrieving it from the abyss. And now reinforcement showing up feels as much like a threat mm. as it does An salvation. escalation. Yeah. Mm. It's, we're not talking about the writers of the Rohirrim charging in with Gandalf in mm. order to uh, turn the tide at Helm's Deep. Like, it would be if Denethor showed up with Men of Mordor. To a certain extent, it's almost like, I don't remember his name, but like the leader of the Dwarven army that comes to assist at the end of The Hobbit. Oh, yeah. That would be Dane Ironfoot, voiced by Billy Connolly, and played by Gleepglop in The Battle of the Five Armies. As you say, it invites escalation. Mm. It's also unnerving because we know the righteous wrath of Mr. White Mm. against those he deems to be the unrighteous. How he chooses to deal with obstacles. Yeah. And more often than not, we are in total agreement that the people he goes after are the worst of the worst. And yet, in spite of that, there is something about the lack of hesitation in not only taking action, but the lengths of that action, Mm. the lengths he will go to, that unnerves us. 
what makes us tense here is we know Green Hollow is an absolute cesspool of what humanity can twist itself into. But this situation is more complicated than the Ku Klux Klan gathering where Steelborn showed up and laid waste to all. A, we don't necessarily think that there is nothing worth preserving. Like, there are literally victims Mm. that need to be rescued. Exactly. That might end up dead in the crossfire if this Mm. is not handled well. Yeah. And, on top of that, our team is stuck in the middle of it, who we definitely don't want to see anything happen. And we don't know how much White will really value Mm. the members of Team Steam. He is coming here to solve a problem. Mm. And we are unsure... Which problem he's going to solve. Well, not just which problem he's going to solve. We're pretty sure we know what problem he's there to solve. We're just not sure what factors in the equation will end up being acceptable losses. Or if he's someone who is capable of that, because so far we've only seen him engage in things that are very much him as an individual targeted and set upon someone else. This increases the scale. Mm-hmm. All of him is now the RSA army that is here, and all of his target is a location mm-hmm. rather than an individual person. And it's hard to target a location without there being collateral. Mm-hmm. But my point is, is that when I said which problem he's going to solve, uh-huh. you and I see it all as the same problem. Yeah. But as you say, as a representative of the RSA, the RSA not being defined by Thomas now mm. or by somebody else whose values we feel better about, here it's just the brutal certainty of the goals set down by nations in general, but by the cartographer's handbook in specific. Mm. We see it as Steamheart needs to be rescued, victims need to be rescued. White sees it as an unruly settlement has to be brought to heel. The focus is just slightly off-center. And also, we don't know if he is aware of the endowment situation. And that's something that could go either way. If he's not aware of it, then there's very little that he's actually there to prize as something that he needs to practice a certain amount of Mm. deft consideration towards in the resolution of this. If he is aware of it, that doesn't really assuage our fears because we know what uh, Thomas's attitudes were towards the steps that would be necessary to keep this safe. But we also don't have the two people who were a bit more invested in preserving the lives of the people who hold the endowment Mm. around anymore. Annie spent her life doing as much as she could with that. We're not really under the impression that Mr. White is inclined to do the same. Yeah, exactly. And finally, it feels weird finally getting to bring this up mm-hmm. because for several recordings now you and I had to put a hard line into all of our references like yep Prow's dead she's gone out of mm-hmm. the picture we need to make sure that you continue to believe that 
until you read the rest of the book. Now, she has suddenly showed up, but as with all of the other points of gray salvation, the way she is presented at the tail end of this chapter, it is not clear to us yet whether she is herself Mm. or whether she succumbed to the Wendigo sickness. Question. Is Grey Salvation what Abigail did when she arrived? Well played, sir. Very Mm. good. But yes, Prowl's not dead, everybody. April Fool's. That joke only works today. And now I'm dating the recording of this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, wait, Uh, Maybe we should do something special. No, it, because it's not releasing on April 1st. So it wouldn't nah, make sense. We would have to put something out now. We would yeah. have to like just contrive a thing. And that's far too much work for you. But we should have an idea for like next year what, uh, what a yeah. through the window April Fool's would be. We could review lamps. No. <laughs> In that mind, like I'm not going to go with this. You know how uh, at the beginning of a School of Movies recording thing with each of the introductions, mm-hmm. people can do like little sort of coy references and gags and whatnot with stuff on occasion. Part of me was so inclined to, at the start of Batman Beyond, to just go, sewing machine! <laughs> I don't think many people beyond you and you I would, would get, get it. that. I would. You get would appreciate that. that but. Like every time, every time you or I make a Linkara reference, every time you or I make an unskippable reference, <laughs> we get the joke. I've every time a lot you of do people. that on the Discord, I'm always the guy who goes like, it's the equivalent of that guy far in the back. You just hear someone going, ah! and you know I'll laugh every time. <laughs> Man. Took six months to finish this episode. I mean, not really. But it does feel a little silly putting it out now, when our first episode back into Steamheart should be referencing everything we did since then. And the most recent episode we recorded on Chapter 39 doesn't even have the incredible news that Toby has finally been awarded his PhD, something he's been working on since I've known him and before through the wind door even started. It will likely be another month before I can start introducing him as Dr. Skeels Jungius. But here we are, return to our retrospective, which will be done before the end of 2023. And to close us out, something to bring our energy back up after that slog of topics. I've been looking for an opportunity to play this song for a while, and this is as good a moment as any, especially since the opening line is, Cause the world might do me in. It's alright, cause I'm with friends. So until next time, this is Mystery Skulls with Ghost.
Just disappear. 